Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. God. Here we are. Another Just a normal conversation in front of a hundred people. <laughs> um, How are you really doing, Dave? I, you know, I'm I'm smiling on the outside, and that's <laughs> all that counts. Tears of a clown. Tears of a Clown. Here we are at the 2019 Mockingbird Conference. We're doing this in front of an audience, recording our second uh, Mockingcast episode in a row without the fifth wheel known as R.J. Heyman. <laughs> and one of the greats that we were talking to R.J. before we recorded this, and he said, um, we said, we don't feel comfortable making fun of Aaron in the same way Sarah and I both said this. We don't feel comfortable making fun of you, because you Aaron. respect me or pity me. Well, it's we, a fine line. It's a mix. <laughs> it's a mix. But uh, <laughs> anyway, I'm going to do everything I can to belittle you. Please do. It, RJ style. It's your love language. Heyman style. <laughs> Little inside baseball there. But I'm um, so glad to be here with the two of you. This is very awkward. How are you doing? <laughs> Sarah. Right. <laughs> Caught an early flight this morning. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. That's it. Good. You, you, yeah. you have got history in New York. Do you want to? I mean, I go, mean, is that what we're doing? <laughs> that you can um, talk about. <laughs> yeah, that I could. Yeah, no, we used to live in New York. So, um, yeah, newly married, moved up here, lived here for a couple of years. So I love to be back, and I love to be at Calvary St. George's because it's like my church away from church. So, yeah, enjoy your forgiveness. Hashtag exactly. Enjoy your forgiveness. Exactly. How about you, Aaron? Uh, I'm doing really well. I, uh, I'm we're. I don't know if you guys know this. We're recording this right now at the place where 30 Rock filmed the Episcopalian cryogenic freezing service. Um, <laughs> they did? Yeah. So uh, Alec Baldwin held the Episcopal cryogenic freezing service open to all black belt Six Sigma and higher. And, and Tracy Morgan goes, that's the craziest thing I ever heard. Episcopal. <laughs> and... Uh, and then they filmed it right here. And there was like uh, Don, Don Geist, the head of the fictional head of NBC, frozen like Han Solo in carbonite right here where we are uh, sitting at this moment. So I'm excited about that. Uh, I'm also excited about New York. I saw, you know, 3,500 year old obelisk in Central Park today that we borrowed from Egypt. Is that a fact? It's a fact. You right? like went out and saw. I stuff did things. Today. I did things. I watched Doctor Phil. Do you remember there Elf? Was a whole <laughs> like episode Buddy about in New York? first cousins that was me. getting married, yeah. and yeah. that's what I did this <laughs> afternoon. It's edifying. It was. Yeah, Anyways. it's impressive. Um, you know what also gets filmed here? Tell It's been canceled now. Daredevil has <laughs> been filmed in this space. Uh, yeah, damn. Holy ground, people! Take your shoes off. Yes, watch out. We're things could happen. Um, well, let's dig into our uh, content for this week, uh, or at least a couple weeks. And the first thing we're going to talk about is, uh, this came from the, the Atlantic Monthly. They're, one of their technology reporters, uh, a young woman named Taylor Lorenz, wrote that the Instagram aesthetic is over. Is Praise over. God, not, and none too soon. Well, here's what she says. She says, every trend has a shelf life. 
And as quickly as Instagram ushered in pink walls and pastel macaroons, it's now turning on them. Anything that feels staged is undesirable for today's cohort or is as undesirable for today's cohort as unfiltered or unflattering photos would be for older influencers. Uh, For my generation, influencer Reese Blutstein says, people are more willing to be who they are and not make up a fake identity. We are trying to show a real person doing cool things as a real person, not trying to create a persona that isn't actually you. Then she says that there's a growing number of accounts dedicated to calling out the various cosmetic procedures that celebrities and influencers have had. And influencers themselves have uh, been actively speaking out about burnout, mental health, and the stress that comes with Mm. maintaining perfection. Hashtag seculosity. (laughs) Hashtag seculosity. Um, Everyone is trying to be more authentic, says Lexi Carboni, a content marketer at Later. Uh, People are writing longer captions. They're sharing how much money they make. I think it all goes back to you don't want to see a girl standing in front of a wall that you've seen thousands of times. We need something new. According to Taylor Cohen, a digital strategist at the advertising agency DDB, the Instagram's aesthetic saturation point came sometime in mid-2018. It's not the same as it was even a year ago, she says. Consider, for example, The Happy Place an Instagram museum that opened to great fanfare in Los Angeles in 2017 and bills itself as the most Instagrammable pop-up in America. When it opened, people were thrilled to fork over the nearly $30 admission price, but when it arrived in Boston this past month, it landed with a thud. In the beginning, you, quote, had to uh, everyone posting these normal photos so that rainbow-colored food stood out. But because so many people adopted that aesthetic, that has become passe. We're living in influencer overload. Plus, all that perfection is a grind. Oh. Yeah, there's a, a woman in the article who's an influencer, and her whole thing is taking pictures of herself, or actually probably having her team take pictures of her in front of very colorful walls. And she said she got to a place where it was like another day, another wall. And I was like, I can totally relate to that. <laughs> no, but uh, it sounded exhausting. Mm-hmm. And uh, and boring and uh, yeah the grind of perfection and uh, my um, take on this article was though I think it's going to become another I mean the law just begets more law and uh, it's it's trying to find grace it's trying to find a little escape from the the demand of perfection but then it, the the question will be how authentic are you how real are you are you being authentically authentic. I mean, there probably will be people who stage like messy living rooms and then take an Instagram photo in front of that to look more authentic. Yeah. Um, or so, I mean, I, I'm not sure no, that I, that's I, happened I, yet, but I, I bet it will, you know. I, I mean, know. I've done that. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you like pour out the bag of chips yeah. on the couch. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Like, I'm like, look how messy we are. Um, we're real people. We're real people. I mean, I love Instagram. Um, I post on it all the time, but I I wasn't aware. Yeah. But I'm, I also like, yeah, I'm like, how does this all end? Like, where does this land? Like if we're asking for people to be more, more and more authentic, like, first of all, please don't be too authentic, but what is that? (laughs) Like, where does that, where does that end up? You know what I mean? But I'm, I, I actually was thinking also about a woman I know, um, who I wrote about, I'm trying to remember her name who lost her daughter pretty tragically at three. And, um, and she wrote about like she had her hashtag was like mom grief, I think. And this has been several years ago. And I've kind of watched this whole community of women who lost children really young, kind of gather around each other. Mm. And I think there is some, I mean, there's some 
major need for that community for them and there's major authenticity there. So um, I don't know how authentic we can be if we're still trying to be authentic. I don't know, right? And authenticity, it's funny, it kind of dates Mockingbird because we've been around long enough that I remember in 2010 and 2011 when authenticity was a huge buzzword. That's the word, yeah. yeah. And there was a book co- written called The Authenticity Hoax, yeah. which was said exactly, authenticity is like humility. The more you try to be authentic, the less authentic you are. Mm-hmm. You cannot be approached directly. It's actually a bit like happiness in that respect. And so you have all these people trying to be authentic, which by definition means you're not actually being authentic because you're, you're self-conscious and you're, right. you're, you're, uh, you're, it's performative. It's just performative in a different way. And yet I still think, I still prefer the way that some of these younger influencers talk and the way that they surface the enormous burden, the mental health burden of this curated perfection or even curated messiness that we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad that that's, that is becoming more and more unavoidable in any discussion of social media, no matter what you do. I remember the guy who, who runs the, um, who, the star of that show High Maintenance on HBO, yeah. which I've never seen. Just <laughs> kidding. It's a great show. And um, I haven't seen that. He quit. He, he did this whole thing about You're being authentic. Instagram. Thank you. And he, he, he basically said, we, let's, we all know deep down that this is like kind of destroying us. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just going to quit it and I'm not going to come back and check on you guys. And I know it's ironic to, to announce on social media that I'm quitting Instagram, but I'm doing it. So I don't know. I also read like a couple of weeks ago that Instagram was thinking very seriously about taking away the like button oh. or like the, no one could see how many likes, only you could see how many likes a photo had gotten. And I wonder, would that change things? I mean, maybe, maybe there is some kind of reckoning coming. I mean, that's the thing about this article. Um, they, they talk about, um, I think, I don't know, I think it was this article that talked about um, traditional influencers. And by the way, traditional, we mean they've been around for like five months. But because this all changes so fast, but traditional influencers are beginning to see followers drop off. And so there's this push to be more authentic because no one wants to see the old, boring, perfect aesthetic. They want to see something authentic and messy. And what's under all that, though, is that it's still, as you point out, about getting likes and about getting follows. And so we may change what the standard is, but it's still, like, make no mistake, it's still about getting people to like you. It's still about getting approval. It's still about getting, it's still, it's still functioning as a law. Um, we may be grading different things, but we're still grading you and people are still, I mean, what's the point of being an influencer if you've only got 10 followers, right? You need to have thousands um, and, uh, and you got to give the people what they want. So I think, yeah, I mean, it's, it just seems like a grind. It never, I mean, it'll be interesting what the next iteration will be. Um, yeah, because there will be another iteration. I do but- wonder though, if it's like the, the also the platform, um, just because Instagram in a way that like, I feel like Facebook tries to, but can't. And then Twitter is so word centric that it, I mean, it demands more of us. Like it demands image and it demands words. And it's, well, it's demanding more words. And I think they said in this article, people are starting to write more along with the images. And so I I just wonder if it's pulling, I don't know if it's pulling more out of us for good or for ill, right? It demands more of us just if we're going to create on there. And so everything is moving towards stories. Do you guys know this? Like even Twitter is experimenting with stories Mm -hmm. because it makes people feel like it's a more one-on-one connection. When you watch the little essentially tiny movie about somebody's day, it makes you feel like you're connected to them or something. 
But stories, I can't get into it. One, I'm too old. And it like I'm 40 years old and it, I, I finally feel like I'm that guy that's like what I'm like, you know, the, so, like my mom <laughs> like still signs her text messages to me. Um, she also likes every single she thing likes every Facebook, single, which is my favorite I wake up, thing. oh, like, yeah. oh, 32 notifications. My mom has been on my yeah, church's Facebook page. Yeah. <laughs> so um, she likes all my stuff. Too. Shout out to Lucia. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but it's like it's like a lot of work to do these stories. Like you have to put quotes. There's different colors. There's yeah. font choices. There's stickers. There's all kinds of things. And I don't have time for that. It's getting like I'm. I'm protesting. I'm boycotting that. But everything is moving in that direction. But, so but just, stories are less mediated a little bit. It feels yeah, that way. Yeah, exactly. Don't you think? Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. one of the things it says in here is that people, are, they feel like their actual single photo post, that's like a major statement. There's something, because it fades away, yeah. you know, there's, a, there's mm -hmm. a time limit on it. It's a little snap chatty that there's less pressure. Yeah. And so naturally people are trying to find uh, a way to... to receive love and affirmation and, and connect with other people, but that requires the minimum amount of um, uh, pressure, basically. And I think that that's, so therefore they move to stories, but yeah. then I get, I don't know about you, I get overloaded with stories. Do you guys know what we're saying when we say stories? I feel like that's like the thing. It's at the top. Some people are saying yes, some people, yeah, it's at the top of Instagram. And it, like, it's like you, you can do these little snippets and they move pretty quickly. Um, yeah. It's like little video clips that you take of your life. Or you should take a story take, of this right now. Anyways, yeah, put a story what we're really saying. Everyone will watch it. Yeah. Well, this is, we'll talk about, we'll go from something that not everyone knows about to something that everyone knows about. Let's talk about death. Um, <laughs> the funeral as we know it is becoming a relic just in time for a death boom. This is in the Washington Post by Karen Heller and brought to our attention by Jared Jones. And it is this, it, it it works with this Instagram article because it kind of describes as the Instagram itself is moving away from curated, beautiful, uh, you know, um, fluorescent colors. It sounds like the death industry is moving into that space. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is what she writes. She says, an increasingly secular, nomadic, and casual America is shredding the rules about how to commemorate death. And it's not just among the wealthy and famous. Somber, embalmed body funerals are, for many families, a relic. Instead, end-of-life ceremonies are being personalized. Golf course cocktail send-offs, backyard potluck memorials, more Sinatra and Clapton, less Ave Maria, more Hawaiian shirts, fewer dark suits. Families want to... I can't believe she wrote this, but I understand it, it was irresistible. Families want to put the fun in Back funerals. In funeral. The movement will only accelerate as the nation approaches an historic spike in deaths, by which they mean uh, the baby boomers uh, are all... Sorry, all, guys. Yeah. Wah, wah. <laughs> then here you go. More than half of all American deaths lead to cremations um, today, yeah. compared to 28% in 2002, due to expense, the environment, and family members living far apart. Uh, and by, the, by 2035... The cremation rate is projected to be a staggering 80%. Yeah. Uh, the cremation, of course, frees loved ones to stage a memorial anywhere at any time and to store or scatter ashes as they please. They quote a few um, of the folks involved in this industry say, services are more life-centered around the person's personality, likes, and dislikes. They're unique and not standardized. Funeral homes have hired event planners, remodeled drab parlors to include dance floors, mm -hmm. And lounge areas acquired liquor licenses to replace the traditional vat of industrial strength coffee. There are death doulas, 
death cafes, uh, death celebrants. No, no, no. Okay. Living funerals, <laughs> which is attended by the honored while still breathing, and end of life workshops for the Awkward. healthy who think ahead. Captain Ken Middleton's Hawaii Ash Scatterings performs 600 cremains dispersals a year for as many as 80 passengers on cruises that may feature a ukulele player, a conch cell blower, and releases of white doves or monarch butterflies. It makes it a celebration of life and not such a morbid affair, says Middleton. Uh, and then she goes for another irresistible pun. She says that the death industry is literally thinking outside the box. Then they sort of, into some, Karen says that, Miss Heller says that anything other than denial that you're going to die seems to be a healthy step in our culture. And yet there's there's something called a death positive movement. Um, Some practitioners worry that death has taken a holiday and that grief is too frequently banished in end-of-life celebrations that seem like birthday blowouts. Do you think we're getting too happy with this? Ask Amy Cunningham, director of the Inspired Funeral in Brooklyn. You can't pay tribute to someone who has died without acknowledging the death and sadness around it. You still have to dip into reality and not ignore the fact that they're absent now. And yet in some services, instead of offering hollow platitudes that barely relate to the deceased, we are getting a new radical honesty where people are openly talking about alcoholism, drug use, and the tough times the person experienced. Suicide, long hidden, appears more and more in obituaries. Opioid addiction especially is addressed in services. So I think what we see happening is you name in your book, Dave, the fact that we're not less religious. We're just doing it in different places Mm -hmm. and in different ways. And I think this uh, trend of the funeral planner, um, that they talk in this article about... um, Jerry Seinfeld's manager and his funeral, and they hired a woman in LA, in LA who her, her job is celebration of life planner. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, this, so that to me names a true thing that people actually need someone to help them walk through what you do when someone dies. And there have long been highly trained professionals like Sarah and myself who will do this uh, for you for free. For free. <laughs> uh, uh, but, but people don't go to church anymore, so they have, to, they have to find a secular version to fill that gap. So I think it names a thing. Um, it's good to have somebody who knows what they're doing help walk you through uh, a death. But, but I, I dare say probably every clergy person in this room has faced the trend of people wanting celebrations of life and not funerals mm-hmm. um, because... I, I don't know why uh, it's it's so uh, because people don't like death yeah. and they but I but I think and back me up here Sarah I think it, people uh, do themselves a disservice because you never actually get to name the hard thing you don't it kind of short shortcuts grief or something I think this whole thing is so selfish I think that's what I struggle with with this piece I mean just to name it it's real selfish um I mean, yes, I, I do. You know, church now is a thing to navigate with funerals, especially with people who don't come to church at all. You know, their great aunt apparently went to church. And so they show up and they want you to do her funeral, but they only want John Lennon songs and they want like clowns, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and so you've got to be like, no, we can't. Like our organist actually can't play John Lennon and like clowns are scary for everyone. <laughs> and um, but it becomes like a. I mean, I, so the, the, the manager's funeral that was described, I felt really sad about that because I thought, gosh, 
because it was her father's funeral. And I thought, if this was my dad's funeral and we had all his favorite things there and we were in his favorite place and we had his favorite music, it would just make me even sadder that he wasn't there, I think. I think that would be, and I wouldn't really have a way to process it because I wouldn't be in like a religious context. Um, I also think that we plan funerals right now um, for ourselves when we should be planning them for the people that are left. Like my husband and I talk a lot about like if we died now, um, well, we have these really high notions, right? You, if we died 30 years from now, we would be cremated and blah, 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 blah. But like if we died right now, I have a four-year-old and eight-year-old and they need a place to come and visit their mama. Mm -hmm. So like, and, and we're not going to say, oh, and mama was cremated. Don't worry about what that is. You're four. You know what I mean? Like we're going to do a coffin. Like we would spend the ghastly amount of money because that's what the people would need at that point when I died. Um, and certainly they would need... I mean, the comfort of Jesus. So, I, yeah, I just, I really, this whole thing is like such a nightmare to me. And I, I mean, I hate, we we do funerals. I mean, I don't know how many you do, but I certainly have done quite a few in funeral homes. Ugh. And that's like the worst. And I've said this before in talks, but I always want to say to people, you know, we used to, and I know no one wants to set up your grandmama in the front room of your house when she's dead. But um, we used to do that. We'd set up people in the parlor, right? That's the room. And then the Civil War happened and we realized we could embalm bodies. Y'all didn't know you were getting a history lesson. Um, we it. could embalm bodies and we could send them around the country. And these guys who were doing the embalming said, hey, we can make money off of this. And they started funeral parlors and that front room of your house became your living room because you didn't have dead people in there anymore. So you could call it that. So, I mean, for me, I just, I mean, I hate funeral home funerals are like the, I would, I would actually rather somebody have them in a movie theater sometimes than in mm. those spaces, but sorry, I have strong opinions about no, that. It's so interesting. I'm, I have like two or three different opinions. Cause I know people who are grieving, you do want to remember your yeah. family member and well, who is against that? That's a wonderful thing to, to have a time to process together and those things. But, and yet to go move from that to a death positive movement, as, as a, I mean, a Christian, I think that death is a judgment. Like, yeah. I think death is, is actually sort of the wages of sin. And that we're, um, Jared Jones wrote about this on Facebook. He says, we don't do celebrations of life. We do services of death and resurrection. That's right. We do not gather together to celebrate a life. We gather together to worship the one who defeated death and proclaim the promises of God over the deceased. And I'm also always, when I hear about death positivity, as it's just another part of life and we should make it as happy, you know, as many Hawaiian shirts as possible. Um, you think about, well, how could you do that if, like, it's a child that dies? Right. Um, and, uh, and then I also think about the Onion article, the great rejoinder to the uh, Lion King, the headline, uh, Dying Lion Sure Doesn't Feel As Though He's Completing Some Great Cosmic Circle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I, that's, that's where I... And with it, and then also, uh, David Brooks has come out with his new book, The Second Mountain, this week. It's been all over the place because it's it's really recounting his conversion mm -hmm. to uh, something like Christianity. And uh, he talked, he wrote this article called Five Lies the Culture Tells Us. And one of the things he says is that we've just sort of imbibed this sort of hyper individualized um, view of life that is expressed in this hyper individualized. Uh, unique, everything's got to be completely, you know, curated to the person's uh, exact personality. 
And that that's an enormous burden to put on the people who are just shocked by sadness. Yeah, who are super yeah. sad. And it's an enormous, it's also an enormous burden for a person to have to come up with their own theory and ritual around death when they've never thought about it or they're just too shell-shocked. Right. And so here's the good thing. By the way, Paul Zoll, your dad, in his book, PZ's Panopticon, looks at all the different ways people approach death. And the conclusion, buy the book, read it. But at the end, he says, when you die, be an Episcopalian. And the burial service begins on page whatever it is, the prayer book, right one. Uh, and he's sort of right in the, uh, because it, it has never been bettered. It's been thought through by people who know what they're talking about. And the beautiful thing about a funeral service, a real funeral service, is that it's going to be scriptural, not stuff you made up. And it's going to be the same for everybody. Because the thing about the celebration of life, it again, it, as Sarah said, it's selfish. It sort of makes up this thing that like each person's, when you die, you need to have something as bespoke as weddings have right. become. Like it's this whole culture of now, I, my parents did not have a gender reveal party. Right. Like this is a new thing. Nobody did this 10 years ago. You but got now here everybody, and they you, just like dealt with you it. Ha- yeah. <laughs> I, have, I had no professional photographs taken of me ever <laughs> until my wedding. Um, and now it's like... You, is your, can, will you be my first date photographer? Right, and then right. we need, yeah. So anyways, <laughs> uh, so we, we, it's part of this. I mean, it's related to the Instagram ability of life. But the, the thing about a funeral is it, my funeral will be the same as Sarah's funeral, mm-hmm. will be the same as Dave's funeral. Maybe the hymns will be a little bit different. But it kind of gets at this fact, it's, it's this democracy of death. Nobody's different here. We all die. And it gives, I, I think about the grandkids of this guy that had the big blowout celebration of life yeah. party and like basically that whole message where we have like granddad um quote baseball hats and his favorite hot dogs and seinfeld jerry seinfeld closes with the you know comedy routine about the guy like for his grandkids they don't have the sophistication to sort of maybe be the i could i grieve in private but this is the way we celebrate his life publicly they're just sad and that whole ceremony is there's if assuming there's no other ceremony just says like, don't be sad. Mm-hmm. And also don't ask questions about how God fits into all this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, do, mm-hmm. a, do a service in a church. Have a real funeral. Well, when it um, also becomes a celebration of life, there's a little bit of a, you cannot hide the performancism aspect of like listing their accomplishments. Right. And what happens if you have a person who just led us sort of a mediocre life and they lived in fear and, and kind of just got through it yeah. and didn't have that many loved ones? Right. The, the, the offensive thing about the Christian gospel is that the, the hope for them is the same as the person yeah. who has got the blowout with 300 people in Hawaiian shirts. Yeah. Can I tell you the most healing line of the Episcopal funeral service? Sure. Uh, Do I have a it's choice? It's at the commendation. I mean, I think this is the most beautiful sentence of the whole thing. And our bishop actually begins his sermons with this prayer. Um, Behold, O Lord, a lamb of your own flock, mm-hmm. a sheep of your own fold, and a sinner of your own redeeming. Like the priest says that next, next to the casket where an actual dead person is, again, getting this idea that we die and are raised. It's not able to ever like to say we are dirt and breath, God's breath and dirt, and we will go back to dust and we'll be raised to new life from that. And so it's very, very earthy and real. And you say with your hand outstretched, this is a sinner of your own redeeming. There's no like uh, uh, kind of whitewashing the person's life you just you've said it all right there this is a sinner and someone who's been redeemed by you so it's not like because the worst thing is a celebration of life that just says the good things and doesn't mention any of the horrible stuff that everybody in the front row like all the family members are thinking and they know that the service is kind of bs yeah i mean i i totally like i keep thinking so i had a relative die 
about a month ago in rural Louisiana, and she was mean as a snake. Mm. I mean, mean. Her only redeeming quality for me was that she loved QVC jewelry, <laughs> and I've gotten a lot of it. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I remember, like, thinking around the death, and I wasn't able to go. I, was, I had the kids, and my husband was traveling, but, um, but my mom went. And it was like, you know, my mom was like, what am I? And it was a, so uh, both sides of my family are, like, hard shell, rural Baptist kind of stuff. So people just get up and say stuff. And I was like, do you think anybody's going to say anything mean about Aunt Augagene? And um, my mom was like, of course not. And nobody did. I mean, because I think the overwhelming message of that funeral and of all those funerals is is the love of God no matter what, you know, and there's rest to be found there. And even for, even when she died, and I remember, I mean, I was like, oh my God, I bet the world's going to feel a little gentler. Um, there, there was also, an, I mean, truly, there, but there was also an element of like, she can rest from her meanness mm-hmm. in, in, in the middle of this ritual, right? Like right. there's relief for her there too, so. Wow. Well, that leads in uh, Have to, funerals, people. Have yeah. a funeral. Yeah. A real one. I feel like we've been very heavy-handed with this one. Very so. heavy-handed. I mean, you do yes. you, but have a yeah, funeral. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have, like, over the like last couple of years, we've highlighted a number of those obituaries that are, like, painfully honest. Yes. They're, they're so funny, basically, yeah. and so yeah. out of the common. Anyway. Yeah. There is um, a way you can talk about those as a preacher in a funeral sermon, delicately, and as a professional, by the yeah. way. Uh, don't do eulogies because it will go off the rails. But yeah. if a preacher can talk about the gospel, I mean, unless you're in a small Baptist church small, in Louisiana, then, just no and then definitely just do, do eulogies. Whatever. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. Yeah. No, the, the, the single worst moment in our the, the the church where I serve our ten the ten years I've been there was one time when someone got up there and uh, held us all hostage with a seventy minute uh-huh. eulogy. It was like a it was like a best friend uh-huh. who wanted to talk about this guy's like how great he was with women, and um. It was like super awkward. David. Like the whole, the whole town was traumatized. It felt like a like a curb your enthusiasm episode. Uh, and afterwards, my my rector just turned to me. He's like, "This is never happening again, ever." Yeah, this is the worst. Because what can you do? Yeah, I'm gonna just like kind of slam <laughs> yes, the guy in the middle of it. That is yeah. what you do. I get the organist to start playing the next minutes? hymn. Yeah. Watch, <laughs> watching him watch the guy do it was one of the. More entertaining than <laughs> I've ever seen in my life. But let's, from death to life, let's talk about Garrison Keillor. Um, season. Sarah, I always associate with him with you. Yeah. And you sent us this uh, piece <laughs> about... For good or ill. I, I love Garrison Keillor. I know. Yeah. Well. We can't ta- talk about Easter this week. And he wrote something. He said, what happened in church on Sunday, I think. This is what he wrote. He said, church was packed on Easter mor- morning. Brass players up in the choir loft. Ladies with big hats, girls in spring dresses. And when the choir and clergy processed up the aisle, the woman swinging the censer looked like a drum major leading the team to victory, which is what Easter is about, the triumph over death. Resurrection is not something we Christians talk about in the same way we talk about our plans for summer vacation or retirement. But it is proclaimed on Easter, and the hymns are quite confident with added brass. And the rector seemed to believe it, believe in it herself. And so an old writer sitting halfway back and surrounded by good singers has to think along those lines. It's right there in the Nicene Creed and in Luke's gospel. The women come to the tomb and find the stone rolled away and the mysterious strangers say, why seek ye the living among the dead? And then on my way back from communion, the choir struck up a hymn, I am the bread of life with a rocking chorus and I will raise them up 
and I will raise them up, and I will raise them up on the last day. As the congregation sang, a few people stood, and some raised their hands in the air, a charismatic touch unusual among Anglicans. And then more people stood. I stood. I raised my right hand. I imagined my long-gone parents and brother and grandson and aunts and uncles rising from the dead and coming into radiant glory. And then I was weeping, and my mouth got rubbery, and I couldn't form the consonants. I stayed for the benediction, slipped out a side door onto Amsterdam Avenue, and headed home. That's what I go to church for, to be surprised by faith and to fall apart. Mm. Without the resurrection... Episcopalians would just be a wonderful club of very nice people with excellent taste in music and literature. Thank you. But, but when it hits you, but when it hits you, what you've actually subscribed to, it blows the top of your head off. I love Garrison Keillor so much, um, which I know in our current era of Me Too is a complicated thing for, um, for everyone, for Me Too. Um, whoops. Um, but for, I mean, I have to say, I mean, I've always loved his writing. I was raised on Garrison Keillor. I literally wanted to name one of my children Keillor, but my husband stood in the way of that. Like, that's how great my love is. Um, but I feel like his writing, since he has, um, sinned and suffered for it, has become more beautiful and more honest and, um, you know, he had a, I don't know how much people know about him, but Garrison Keillor was raised in a very stringent, uh, pretty scary Christian household and sort of has come to the Episcopal church, but sort of half-heartedly. But it seems like since sort of his very public falling out, he writes about the church in a way that um, I, I can't read it without weeping. I mean, I, I feel like he understands church now and the need for it now. And the fact that he's like sharing it with the general public is pretty incredible to me. So that's why I sent you this piece. I just, I loved it. I'd like to compete with Sarah about who loves Garrison Ooh, Keeler more. I will win this. Uh, you might, but but some of my most... Uh, Are you related? I've always been kind of lukewarm. On well, I like childhood memories for me, backseat of my dad's car, yes, listening yes, to Prairie yes, Home Companion. Yes. Like Garrison Keeler's yes. voice makes me feel safe yes. and at home. Yeah, and it's uh -huh, wonderful. Yeah, we're my, tracking. My yes. dad made us listen to very different things. <laughs> well, there was also Beatles and Mozart. So that was the lame childhood that I had. Okay, but pra Well, the God. Beatles weren't lame. Anyways... Not about me. The The thing that is really wonderful about this is he talks about what church is actually for, mm -hmm. which is to make you fall apart, to make you feel understood, to make you feel seen, and having been seen, to make you feel loved, like touched by a divine grace that you don't deserve. And so ch any church that thinks it's about something else, like please read what Garrison says here. It's it, it's the, this, the, the idea that he can no longer form the consonants in the hymns. Mm. Um that means the gospel is being preached and felt by a man who clearly really needs it. And that's what I thought was so beautiful about this piece. Um, and I think so many churches think that they are about other things. Uh, but what was really beautiful was, was, this, was this thing. And, and it doesn't sound like it was a heavy... I've heard sermons that are like, let me give you the 10 reasons like the, why the resurrection is true, like kind of an apologetic sermon. And that's not... That's not um, I don't think those land usually. Um, I think just preaching as if the resurrection is actually true and what you believe. And it sounds like that's what happened. And he just was struck by it as someone who needs a resurrection. There's a song by the Hold Steady. Um, what a resurrection really feels yeah, like. Yeah, it, it describes a girl who stumbles into mass, her hair full of broken glass, 
and she tells the priest, let me tell you how a resurrection really feels. Mm. And, um, and Garrison Keillor is somebody who's, I think, like that. He's, he's come um, in a place of real brokenness, and he's open to hearing this message. Christianity is about death and resurrection. It's not climbing ladders and getting better. And the church has welcomed him because I remember we we read one of his pieces on the podcast when he went back to church, yeah. mm-hmm. and we and I I knew what church it was. It's in Manhattan, and I was immediately nervous for him that they would find out who he was and that he wouldn't be welcomed there. So it's like such a huge gift to me to know that like, and he's it's the same church. I mean, I know what church is. It's like that he's continuing. He like he's found a home. It's there. Hillsong, isn't it? It's not Hillsong. Ooh. You might think that, but they don't like girls to be in charge oh. there. So. Ooh. Ooh. Well, then, uh, <laughs> let me think. If I were RJ sitting here, yeah. I would probably you would say what he said song. last time. He said, he remember what he said? He, he was like, last time we talked about Garrison Keeler, Mr. Party Pooper, Heyman. What did he say? said, well, uh, that's all great, but why does he feel the need to sort of be publicly, sort of be, oh, yeah, you know, perform it for us? And I think, you know, like, like I always think, you know, to hell with you, RJ. Yes. <laughs> like, uh, and the horse you rat. rode in on. Yeah. <laughs> this is a beautiful moment. And in, a, and in a week when I read something in the New York Times by some mainline Protestant person talking about how the resurrection, you know, the, the, the bodily resurrection is, you know, who cares or sort of why yeah. Christians get obsessed with that. And you're thinking like, well, this is the power. There's, there's power in the blood. You yeah. know, there, there's... This is a, uh, he's, he's thinking about seeing his loved ones again. He's thinking about death itself being trampled down, not metaphorically, as, as true as that. It doesn't, it doesn't not work as a metaphor. Yeah. It doesn't not work in all sorts of other narrative forms, but we're talking about a real thing. Mm-hmm. And can I say the power, and, yeah, the power of music in this as well is yeah. just another real key thing. Um, I remember Leander Harding in seminary would say uh, more people are converted through hymns than sermons, and there's probably something to that. I mean, Garrison Keillor would never, and many people would never find themselves just at a cocktail party saying, and he, and God will raise them up on the last day. Like, that's not a thing we say, <laughs> but when you put it to music, so oh we do gosh. this thing where we all then, it's if okay. we, we sort of say, if we sing it, it's okay. And so you start expressing this thing with your body, um, and somehow it connects to your heart, and you're just now a puddle in the pew, um, because you are thinking about how if you get past your hyper-rational, intelligent, enlightenment brain, and you start thinking about your brother and your grandparents and your mom and all those people, and you start saying and singing, I will raise them up on the last day, now you've connected with, your, with that deep desire to have death not be the end. I mean, that's, we're made to go back and be with God. And, and so the music has allowed him to do that. And that's another thing why, for example, at a, tying it back to the funeral talk before, you, you, you don't want to be singing my way. Right. At the funeral. Right. Uh, people request it all the time. I have a policy at St. Albans Waco, and I've preached from the they pulpit. They request that song? Oh, my gosh. Do you yeah. tell them, like, okay, if you change the lyrics to, I did it my way, and I'm probably going to hell for it, <laughs> you can sing it. Then you can sing it. <laughs> then you can sing it. No, well, I don't. Maybe I should. But People love hell jokes. Yeah. So, yeah. It's always, it's a pastoral <laughs> winner, I find. <laughs> Uh, yes, and I think, but and music, that, and that's another reason it, the Garrison, so the thing about, you know, why is Garrison Keillor to RJ's thing about why does he have to kind of be public about this? Let's not forget, like, he's writing this on some little website he had to start for himself yes, yes. after his whole professional was life wiped was from the internet. annihilated. Yeah. I know, RJ really needs to ch- Seriously, what a judgmental, 
RJ, where does he get off? Yeah, RJ Heyman. If you're listening, that guy's when you, so when you were like, what, what would RJ say right now? I was like, well, I mean, he'd probably be quoting from Paul, but he'd probably, he'd probably go straight to the solution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. He's like, this is my only hope. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Sarah, any closing thoughts for us? What would Dolly say? No. Um, go to Dollywood. Yeah, no, go to Dollywood. No, I don't have any closing thoughts. I'm just glad to be here with y'all. And I mean, this is very awkward to do it in front of you. Um, but I feel like it's gone okay. So I'm glad for that. Yeah. Have we offended 50% of you? I hope. <laughs> that was my goal. I just feel like everybody who like had their parent have a funeral at a funeral home hates me now. I know, and I'm okay with that. I'm just, thing. I'm going to receive it. So I think there's forgiveness even for those who get the whole funeral thing wrong. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's yeah, I'm, I'm hoping course. open that because I've been to some disastrous ones, yeah, including that one I mentioned earlier. <laughs> On that note, um, uh, we'll stop holding you hostage and we'll get into uh, the actual conference because we've got a yo-yoist that is about to knock your socks off. People think, did they just get a sort of a good yo-yoist to Mockingbird? And I say, no, that was last year. We got the best <laughs> yo-yoist we could find. This guy's been on the MTV Movie Awards. He's got a black light. You just don't know what you've signed up for. And I'm just so grateful for that. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again in a couple of weeks with Rutger. Amen. Thanks, y'all. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.